Definitely, there will be an end to it, and I think people feel it, and the, even the the old generations also they already feel. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building the clean energy system by 2050. This week, we speak to Anna Shumako Ackerman, founder of Climate Online, a website and weekly newsletter highlighting online events around energy and climate. She is also a board member for the Center for Environmental Initiatives Eco Action. The reason to have Anna on the podcast was to better understand how we navigate the online events space. As we hear in this episode, Anna transformed her own personal online habits into a website that helps us all stay informed on climate, environment, and energy topics by helping us attend online events. She even describes how these events can help us land new jobs or internships. In this episode, we cover why she became interested in climate and energy, and how starting out with an engineering degree led her to dig deeper into how to change the energy system before she left to do a degree abroad. After her return to the country in 2014, she became a leader, changing policies to increase the role of renewables and energy efficiency. We conclude our discussion by considering the role of online events as a way to stay up to date on the latest research and news, along with how to host a better online event. Something we'll be trying out very soon here. The takeaway for me in this interview was Anna's long-running interest in climate issues, and how her initial, almost standard education as an engineer was insufficient to answer her own natural curiosity, and drove her to find ways to change both the formal institutional system. And then starting the climate online portal to encourage further change. Anna is one of our former Central European University master students who earned her degree in environmental sciences, policy, and management as part of the Erasmus Mespom program. This brought her to CU and to the University of Manchester. Anna's story post university is both informative and inspiring for what we do after we leave formal education. And how sharing our own interests and hobbies can make a difference in the much bigger world of climate change and energy transition. Thank you for joining this episode of the My Energy 2050 podcast. If you find this episode useful, please send it forward on social media, highlighting the part you found most useful. And now for this episode, Anna Ackerman,、uh, welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us. I'm really excited、uh, to talk to you today, particularly about the、uh, Climate Online website, and this is the reason I, I wanted to have you on. But、uh, before we we get into it, I was just wondering how how and why did you become so interested in the energy sector and and doing something with climate change? Well, actually, it started、uh, with with the, my parents, who are both engineers. And、uh, when I was fourteen,、uh, I had already. I was started thinking, you know, how should I proceed with my education, and and university. And they actually pushed me not toward humanitarian disciplines, but really to take the、uh, the technical、uh, issues more seriously because they knew all the、uh, all the pros of 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 this sphere. And、uh, In in Ukraine, as in many Soviet countries, we actually、uh, start our、uh, higher education quite early. I was 16 back then. It was hard to choose between technical, different、uh, technical disciplines.、Uh, 
Um, and uh, just, I think it was by chance that I started uh, in the energy sector. Uh, and uh, just uh, it was just someone who recommended to say there was a there is a very nice faculty at the uh, Technical University of Ukraine. You should really check this out. Uh, it was called Power Engineering Faculty. I thought sounds great, sounds really interesting. And I remember how I was a bit horrified when I saw the uh, the schedule for the first year uh, of studies. It was something absolutely crazy that did not did not really go in my head. It was about boilers or thermal power plants and stuff like that. And I was like, what is this? What did I sign up for? It was really sounded crazy. Uh, and I ended up actually uh, at the Department of Thermal and Nuclear Power Plants. It was really by chance. I was not really, um, uh, well, not just not interested. I wasn't sure what, what I was studying. And then uh, year by year, I was really becoming more and more curious. And I really, uh, really understood how how absolutely interesting the energy sector is, how many things there are, right? Because we cannot live these days without electricity. It's just so crucial. It's like water or air that we breathe. Um, and then also, uh, slowly, I became interested in international uh, issues, what's happening in, in the energy sector um, all around the world. And I slowly got into renewable energy, uh, started also reading more about that. Uh, in Ukraine back then, but even now, um, we well there is there is of course a big interest now for renewables but still um in terms of new technologies and, and their application it, we're still i think a bit behind the uh, other countries and um and can, then can i, I, was can, so I can i stop you there because this oh. is it's really interesting because basically you you started in an engineering faculty and then now you've moved more into climate, I don't want to say policy, but a bit of activism. How, how did you and why did you make this change? Because engineering is a very, you know, specific discipline. Uh, and and what you're doing now, which we'll get into in a, in a minute, uh, is, is quite different. So how, how, how did this, how did you change a bit? Well, well, because I got, I got so interested in, in what's happening, what's going on in the world. Um, I really felt like it was necessary to uh, to have the also the western education and uh, i ended up in uh, well having my second master's doing my second master's approach. and we should we, we actually should give the background to that sorry i didn't say that yeah. you're one of my former students <laughs> exactly uh well michael was among the, uh, the the great professors that i was lucky to have um, for my second master's uh, in environmental sciences policy and management. And uh, I think it gave so much. Uh, and the background also in climate and in, in different environmental um, uh, environmental issues. And I think with all that, like being having having this, I, th I think I had just an excellent background in power engineering, but it was mainly energy uh, plus climate issues. And that made me uh, yeah, that, that in my head, everything kind of united uh, in one. Uh, and even more than when I came back to Ukraine and I was uh, looking for a job. And uh, and it was the first job interview. I immediately I immediately uh, passed it uh, very well and started working for well one of major environmental NGOs in the country that works on climate policies. I started in energy efficiency sector and then I slowly got more into climate policies. And uh, I think now, uh, again, everything everything is one in my head why of course it makes total sense that energy is so important when we uh energy sector is so important when we talk about solving climate crisis um 
and I will, I've been always interested more in the end about uh, energy strategies and about how we decide how how we uh, solve long-term issues with long-term solutions, right? And uh, it's uh, I, th I think it was a lots of luck, but also of course persistence and many things that that uh, got me to where I am now. Mm -hmm. So so after you you're, you finished your degree at CEU, uh, then you went back to Ukraine and then you you got a job there. What kind of job did you get? What what, what was this position? So that yeah, so um, I started um, in the NGO um, again. One of the one of the NGOs that is was really the uh, um, the main ones um, working on national policies on the national level. Um, and actually, I just want to give it also background because that was back in two thousand fourteen when when I graduated, um, and uh, that was exactly the time when in Ukraine we had the uh, uh, the so called. Um, Maidan revolution, the uh, the revolution of dignity happening, um, with all the absolutely insane changes that were happening in the country, and it was an amazing moment to contribute to with all the knowledge that I received, um, and it just uh, I think it's just impossible. It would have been absolutely impossible in any other country to get to the level where I got uh, I, I got uh, back then back at home, uh, because there were so many changes. NGOs were really needed. Uh, there were so many initiatives uh, to to have new legislation, uh, to have big changes in the government and the parliament. There were so many young leaders who came, and um, and I think I got just got it in the right time in the right place um, because I could uh, I, I was actually participating in writing a new legislation in energy efficiency sector, in energy sector working on new energy strategies uh, with, uh, within well the work that I was doing as a civil society. Activist and 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 uh, analyst, um, and uh, got to know amazing people. Also, the parliament members, the government members, you know, like all oh, from excellent experts from the whole country. Um, was really 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 fascinating, and actually, it still keep keeps on going. So the wave still continues, and I think it's really really excellent. And Ukraine still keeps uh, keeps up and uh, tries to implement the uh, the uh, European legislation. Um, so yeah, so that was and, and uh, why am I saying that? Just the like that the, the NGOs work in Ukraine uh, became really really important. Exactly when I just returned from from Hungary uh, to Ukraine after my studies. Um, so I worked for first uh, two years, um, two three years on energy efficiency in buildings issues, and then uh, more on climate policies, um, mostly probably within energy sector. Um, well, so, so you were able to draw both on your first degree of engineering, particularly when you talk about energy efficiency, and also your, you could say that your policy kind of experience studying that at, at CEU, to then go into an NGO and be, okay, we'll say a young, author, not authoritative, not authoritarian, but authoritative kind of leader on these issues, helping to draft the legislation. So you were working up to this point. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I still cannot believe actually that it was happening like that um, and that everything coincided so well. Um, but then the, I was not the only one. There were so many young people who back then in 2014-15, they returned specifically to Ukraine. They were studying abroad, living abroad, and they uh, wanted to help the country to change. Um, and uh, some of them also became uh, deputy ministers and, and, and some were taking different positions, so very active uh, civil society um, activists, experts, so and so on. So 
there was a big refreshment happening. After that, of course, it, it, it slowed down, uh, stretched a bit. Uh, but then that moment was so inspirational and so important. And actually, I was not sure in the beginning if I wanted to come back um, after, after I graduated. But I think it was really like a really an important, really, really great decision. And that's why one of the I'm discussing now also with some MESPOM students with the, uh, who were graduating from the same uh, master's program uh, who are from all around the world. And they usually try to search for jobs uh, after they graduate in uh, Western organizations, um, which is really great to have this experience. Then I'm suggesting actually to them that they should not be afraid to come back home because there they usually have plenty of incredible opportunities, probably some that they would never have had. Uh, well, they, they probably right, because they, they've had that, we could say Western education and then they return back home. Is that? Is yes, that, they, that they, the they return back home and they are, I would say they're more probably needed and their, their knowledge is really special back home. Um, it's really hard to understand it straight away, but then all the skills that you receive, uh, they are really, really precious and, and usually they're really, really useful. You can really reveal yourself a lot when you're back home, when you have the strength and you know you're at home, but then, uh, you have a, bro you have yeah. a broader perspective, right? And, and yeah. is that, is that, I don't want to put yeah, yeah. words in your mouth, <laughs> but, but I, I'm guessing it's a broader perspective. Okay. I'm, I'm American, but when I go back to America, I definitely see things in a, in a much different light of what, what what can be right compared to the people people there and kind of yeah socialized medicine or <laughs> renewable energy all, all these things that that uh, you know it, we, could be improved in america if for example uh examples from y europe are used in in the us or something so yeah and uh, well i probably in my probably um uh Mostly, how to say, my experiences relates to the developing world, developing countries, which are still, did, which still did not reach the level of the probably U.S. So we, we can talk U.K. or other countries like that, um, because yeah, you tend to think I would better go where there is more resources. Probably it sounds more interesting to be in the the Western world, but uh, again, back at home, uh, you cannot even imagine how how uh, fulfilling it could be. Um, I'm talking from my perspective again with the uh with the because i'm coming from ukraine right um and i also cannot imagine exactly what it is like to be the u.s citizen uh or or french citizen. No, no no right because we all we all have these different different perspectives but then how do you how do you work to i would say communicate uh maybe this is what i i struggle with but communicate what what you see in for example ukraine or even other eastern european countries and I'm getting more and more flack about I shouldn't use the term Eastern Europe. No, no, no country says they're in Eastern Europe except for their neighbors are in Eastern Europe. But, but um, how how would you even say, frame it as developing countries or the east side of Europe compared to the west side of Europe, where where the energy issues are so different? How 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 can we I would say communicate the difference in the energy system here? compared to maybe policy making and for policymakers in Brussels? Well, first of all, definitely every country would be already different, right? Uh, so generalization is, uh, well, it's hard to say exactly. But then based on my experience, 
there are some crucial things uh, which I think uh, may differentiate quite a bit um, this East and West um, perception. First of all, uh, it is abs it is so difficult to plan long term to plan anything long term, and this is why. Well, I I participated in development of energy strategy uh, where you really really want the country to set an ambitious goal for the for the future, and just go there no matter what. But it becomes absolutely uh, practically impossible because of so many reasons because of uh, well. Uh, lack of economic possibilities, uh, financial ones, right? Um, at the same time, with a change in political landscape that really is drastic. Um, every five years, it just changed so much. Um, and um, it's it's one, one aspect. So long-term uh, planning is, is so complicated. And I understand why. Uh, I still believe that it's possible. And, and I think I... I have now hope that I have now a good example of that, uh, but then maybe I'll talk about it later. Um, how how it's changing for better. So lack of long term planning is one thing. Um, then um, well, there was something else I was thinking. This is why I made notes yesterday. Um, and then of course um, climate climate is uh, in itself is not as much of an issue as in um, well. We, Again, if we use this term Western countries, Western world. Uh, well, actually, you can even see that by, by social surveys that climate uh, is so important for so many people now around the world. Uh, they say it's the, the main environmental problem. But where do they say that? They, it, it could be, I guess, it could be the US, maybe to an extent. It could be uh, Western Europe. In a country like Ukraine, uh, there was just actually uh, recently there was a, a social survey released where Climate appears to be number eight in the list of the most critical environmental issues people consider. And the first ones would be water pollution, air pollution, and so on. Actually, because these are the most important issues in the country, they may be connected to climate, but people don't understand that and they don't want because it's so far from them. And because of that, because there is no, uh, because there is no demand to solve climate uh, issues, of course, there was no political response. So it just, it just lost somewhere that this discussion it just practically doesn't exist and uh, that's why it's important there are, that there is civil society uh that there are also experts un uh, organizations and programs that are working to try to explain that it's also uh, not just an issue but climate actually uh embraces everything else all around it that's that's how it is um in most of the cases uh because air pollution and and uh the um the um uh, problems connected to climate change. They usually come from the same sources, right? Climate is just uh, abstract and then the yeah, water it's probably and air. That's why it's more abstract. And again, it makes absolute sense. I don't want to criticize the population of, of, of the country because for them, it's not an issue and it's normal because they, you know, they may have not a lot of resources even to, to eat, but they see dirty water, you know, or, or someone is in or, cold, or cold now. Even I, I'm guessing they probably burn a lot of wood or just coal for heating. So the, these types of things, right? And like villages or small cities, just yeah, trying to, yeah, to exactly, stay warm. Exactly. That's exactly the issue. And uh, Ukraine still uh, burns tons of coal. And, and we are locked in, in coal and nuclear, um, just like Poland is still locked in into, into coal uh, and wood burning and so on. And the crazy air pollution. 
Um, so how do you get out of that? Uh, in people's minds, it's still no, normal. How do you change this paradigm? It's very complicated. And for decision makers there, because there is no way to think long term, they are always trying to solve the issues of today on the first place. What to do with these striking coal miners? Well, we just give them money, finally pay them their salaries and that's it. And we, we solve the issue. But the issues are so much more complex and so much more complicated and so much more deep. Um, so, they, you know, everything kind of is tangled uh, within it, yeah, all of these issues. And uh, so I think, uh, and, and because climate, oh, and because climate issue is is not really an issue, and not not discussed uh, a lot, of course, uh, climate solutions such as renewable energy, for example, uh, are also progressing quite slowly, better than the other Eastern, uh, well, Eastern and Asian countries probably uh, of the post-Soviet um, uh, post-Soviet countries. But uh, you know, but, uh, and, we find and, and, it what is the situation now in Ukraine? So that so you went back in 2014. Well, that seems a long time ago. But uh, so six years now, and now you have a new president or newish uh, president uh, who, okay, it's hard for me to follow, to be quite honest, the, the politics in Ukraine, because there is so much turn, <laughs> turnover. Uh, but but now it seems he's also anti-corruption, or maybe they, they're all anti-corruption, uh, but are things, so that was six years ago. Are things really changing there? I mean, more solar more investment to energy efficiency, kind of getting rid of Russian gas, all these kind of both energy security and social issues are looking back now. What, what you saw six years ago, has it been addressed, um, at least to an extent? Well, that's that's exactly what I thought of mentioning, and I think it's good to talk about solutions and some positive uh, things that, that that did work. And I think in Ukraine, the uh, the good story I cannot yet use the word success story, but I th it's because it's still ongoing. But hopefully, it will be the success story. Is the energy efficiency in buildings? Um, well, the energy efficiency in buildings as a uh, as a topic that actually grew so quickly, well, relatively quickly in, in years, uh, in the last years, uh, that happened thanks to big pressure from civil society. And I was involved in that, so I kind of can say that exactly the case. From donor organizations uh, from the EU, I think because donors from different countries just uh, just told themselves it's good to finally for Ukraine to finally do at least something and they thought energy efficiency could be exactly the thing and they also united their efforts to say if you do if you if you pass the good legislation we're gonna help you with anything we you know we can to to do that uh you will see the results for sure and energy efficiency is exactly this this topic that I think that once you understand how uh uh, how important it is, and that also it gives good results. Then you, as also as any policymaker, you I think you become proud. Um, and energy efficiency fund was one of the topics that was discussed a lot. Is to have one national fund that would provide resources for house owner associations to for for energy renovations because the uh, well the, the sector of buildings, the residential buildings in Ukraine is a really really poor state. 
uh, an energy efficiency fund after lots of work after legislation that passed uh, was established in 2017 it was replenished with uh, resources from eu germany and from ukrainian budget which i think is very fair and now it started working so it's been on so the work has been going last years uh, there are more and more housing associations we started receiving the money and, and started uh, doing the renovations uh, one amazing thing about the energy efficiency fund is that it's exactly this long-term solution and hopefully the fund will be there no matter what no matter who's coming to power uh, it just has to be sustainable, has to be there for people. Once the demand is there, once the results are there, uh, I think it's a, it's a great, great, uh, well, like like a really could be success story for, for, for the country, right? Um, and I hope for that. It, just because it starts, I will like, I want to be silent there. I want to say, okay, let's see how it goes further. Uh, but I'm very glad that, uh, that this happened. And, uh, it's it this is just an example in energy efficiency sector of course in renewables there was a boom also of renewable of, of construction of new uh, of new solar and wind plants uh one really uh, amazing thing that actually now actually i want to i want to say this number now we have uh something like 14000 solar roofs uh so uh, solar plants, small solar plants installed on residential buildings, uh, mostly private houses. It seems to be so small in comparison to millions in Germany or, or in the UK or in California only, right? But for Ukraine, it's huge because there was zero just some six years ago. And now there is already four, thousands of them and thousands. And it's, it's, it's been uh, growing. And I think that's excellent. And, and who who can is it uh, who can afford the the solar panels? And is so there's support from a, from a, the budget, from or from from this fund. And who kind of normally would would get these? That's uh, so the support has been coming from the green uh, so-called feed-in tariff or green tariff we call it in Ukraine scheme. Uh, the support is coming from within the market, so it's not directly budget, but. Uh, there, there is um, there is a system in a way that made it to make sure that that uh, if you, you that you can anybody who installs solar panels can uh, can have uh, their return uh, from from the electricity market and of course that's a very, actually a very good question who can install who can afford to install solar panels because it's still not of course not everybody and um, there is still a, a lot of work has to be done to make sure that it's supported well also by uh, by for a bit more probably by the government to make sure that it's ongoing until solar panels probably will be so cheap that it doesn't make sense to to even even like further provide until any, we get uh, the, get there uh, I want to I want to just shift a little bit um, then away from from your experience in Ukraine and and look at uh, why you started climate online and and this uh, I yeah I, I came across it on your posts on, on LinkedIn I think and maybe Facebook and and I thought this was really cool when, when you launched it and you launched it pre-corona, <laughs> which I think is, is important to, to state that the world wasn't all virtual uh, when, when you had this idea, when you set it up. But could, could you explain what Climate Online uh, is and, and why did you why did you set it up? Right. Well, Climate Online, the way it is now, is um, a weekly selection of 
what I call the most interesting <laughs> webinars and online events from all around the world on the topics of climate, environment, sustainability. Um, the Climate Online uh, is a website, but also is a newsletter that anybody can subscribe for. Uh, Climate Online is in social uh, networks to make sure that uh, anybody can also check what's happening every single week. Uh, and uh, it seems to be kind of, I think it seems to be a simple idea, right? It's just like in one place, there are lots of online events from around the world. And uh, also you may think, well, probably it, it existed before something like that. But actually, once I started digging, I realized there is nothing like that. And I had this idea for quite some time. Uh, and that came to me because I've been always curious. Um, I've been always checking the, the news of what's going on around the world of, again, of events which are happening either offline or online, doesn't matter, uh, just to know, you know, who are the people who are working on the topics I'm working on, uh, what what is there, uh, what, what, probably there are, there are things that, you know, we can apply also in, in our work, in, in our countries, something that uh, everybody needs to know. Um, yeah, and I realized there's actually impossible, there are so many sources of information everywhere. Uh, you can be subscribed to hundreds of newsletters and there will be so many things and you just don't read them anymore, right? And I realized that my colleagues were not as curious as me. So I was constantly sending them information about events, about, you know, what's, what's going on. There is the, the big thing that just uh, boomed recently uh, uh, about renewables or climate or something. And yeah, so I had that idea for quite a while. Uh, and well, and then came maternity leave. Uh, this is where I had a bit of free time. Uh, and that, yeah, it was just before Corona, actually, which was a funny coincidence, I, I, I recall. Um, and I had a bit of free time and I thought, why, why not making this idea come true? So it started as a Telegram channel. Climate Online was first a Telegram channel um, where I was doing some updates from time to time uh, on, on the events uh, from around the world. And then it grew into the website, newsletter and all of these things that I'm mentioning. And, and I also try sometimes to not only give information about the events, but also give suggestions on how to organize better the uh, the online events, because I think it's very critical these days. Um, and uh, in the end, just just to just to summarize and, and just to see what is the what is the whole idea behind? Because climate online is um, uh, what what does it give? It gives so many opportunities. Because first of all, you can see what's going on. Uh, to keep yourself updated, even if you just check the the names of the events, you can see, aha, there is this happening and that happening. That's the first thing. The second thing is that you get to know the experts who are working on the topic and organizations who are organizing something cool. And even if you're looking for a job, it's a secret, uh, your, your secret oh, website, you can see who's working in the topics you're, you want to work in, right? That you're interested in. Uh, so you see who are these active organizations who do stuff, what kind of projects they have, because they talk about them now everywhere. They have so many online events. Um, and uh, it saves your time because you don't have to scroll through all these endless pages, newsletters, and you just have one single source of information for you. I'm not claiming I have all the events <laughs> in no, one no, place. No, no, but, but I like your, your explanation. Now I'm just looking at the week of October 12th to 13th. But the what what these and I hadn't thought of this before, but what you're saying is actually, yes, these are the events and then you can attend them online and you can or sign up for them. 
whatever. But but what actually you're saying more is like who is doing what and who is who. So rather than just relying on okay, I'm an academic, so journal articles to come out or. You know, it's hard to find out what's going on in, in, in some research centers, I don't know, in France or in Germany, UK, right? But here I could actually kind of get a sense of emerging topics, right? Because if there's a topic, uh, COVID or I don't know, just uh, auctions or things like this for renewable energy, but there's always these emerging topics, right? And one of the first things people do is organize a, a conference around it or a discussion around it to explore these things. So, so just by looking at the list, uh, then then we start to understand like uh, what what is like emerging area of research or emerging area of, of topics. So, so here is the green is green the new growth paradigm by the European Commission. Okay, so that's gonna be a bit out of date because the European Commission, but <laughs> no, I, I shouldn't say that, right? But but like daring cities, this looks cool. F Federal city of Bonn, right? Visions for the future of Europe's power system webinar uh, series by European Network of Transmission System Operators, right? And these these are the people that are really doing doing the work themselves, right? So so you're saying, and then then you can get a sense if you're looking for a job. Or looking for more information on on one of these um, organizations or topics, this provides you that it's kind of like a, a cheat sheet of who is who. Well, it's uh, in in my mind, it's exactly that. And and again, that's uh, not what you may think about when you think, oh, there is a there's a website about events. Um, but I think it it already gives a quite a good overview. Of course, again, I cannot. Um, provide you with an overview of everything but if, but then uh, probably everybody who's working in environment and climate sector understands that uh, it's still a kind of a bubble it's a limited world where there are some very active players some very active companies organizations who do stuff and basically I'm just trying to I'm, I'm making sure that I'm following them I'm, I'm, I'm seeing what's what they do and then their events end up there and exactly as you mentioned if there is any new uh, research that was released or a big, uh, doesn't matter, survey policy paper from from big organizations like International Energy Agency and so on, they would definitely do the presentation online, accessible for everybody because they want people to know what's happening, what is the results and so on. And they want to know not just, they don't want to address only policymakers, but everybody else. And there comes an interesting thing that, um, well, Climate Online, also the, the idea behind that is to make sure that the, the event finds its audience because uh, every organization, every company, they live uh, in their certain bubble again also. They have the audience that they constantly address that could be from through newsletters, social networks, but it's less or more the same people who follow them, right? Um, but how do they find new audience? How do they make sure that actually they're heard? Like, what about all the other people? And then on the, uh, it's from their perspective, from the perspective of us, for example, of, of users of the information, we are over flooded with so many things, with so much information. We are subscribed to tons of everything. And uh, how, how do we, yeah, so how do we select even uh, the inter an interesting event? Uh, that we would probably look yeah, but ba basically, uh, what what rises to the top on the Facebook feed or the LinkedIn feed type of thing is yeah, 
Okay, that's my <laughs> that's that's what happens with me. But but I, I this is why I really like this because it's a it's a great summary and then you can just go down and look at it. How do you how do you find out find these events? Um I again I'm because I've been following so many uh so many well news and and and, and organizations already before. That's why I, as I as I mentioned I was curious all the time and curious still. Um, and, uh, because, you know, like one organization likes the other one. And so I just try to follow as many as possible. They appear in my, in my stream on social media. Uh, and, uh, I, sometimes I do a basic search in Google also. Uh, but I think the most useful sources for now have been, uh, Twitter and LinkedIn, uh, surprisingly actually enough, even for myself, um, and also newsletters that I'm subscribed to. And plus there are some uh, organizations that also try to do their own selection, but it's limited to certain topics. So I'm, 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 you know, I have all this information and I sit down a few times per week and I go through multiple websites of different companies, organizations, institutions who do stuff. Also of big uh, and important um, uh, institutes and universities such as Cambridge. What do they do? Do we know what do they do? You know, Oxford uh, or uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology and other ones. What do they do? We actually, we're not sure, right? So I'm checking if they have anything interesting going on also in, in, in the topics. And this is how I end up with my selection. Uh, I'm, again, I'm not claiming that there is everything, but I'm trying, uh, I'm trying to really find the, the events, the interesting events. And um, uh, this is one of the well, probably we, we may discuss it a, a bit later, but there, one issue that I find is the uh, poor communication. If people don't communicate well the event, uh, what is the likelihood that even I, me, myself, was trying to find them hardly, who would notice it, you know? Um, so uh, communication is really, really important. So those who communicate well, communicate well, most likely that I will see this event and I would add it to this selection. Uh huh. Okay, I love it. And actually, let's move on because uh, this is my problem. Sorry, I, 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 I don't care about the audience or anyone else, but we have the Energy Policy Research Group at, at CEU. And now, I mean, we have actually been doing more online and had speakers join us online or posting the videos online. And, and certainly now we're definitely doing everything online. Um, but how do, how do we create like a good event or how do we both create a good event, but, but also create one that's, um, actually, let's just start there. I think that's probably enough. How do we actually create a good event that, that works online? First of all, of course, for, for any event, it's important to have the, the essence of the event clear and the goal clear to make sure that you don't talk about everything and nothing at the same time. Uh, that's of course important, but then the problem is that many people stop there because they have crazy speakers, great event that in their head, a topic is excellent and so on. And then comes the question of communication. Communication before the event, during the event and after the event. Uh, and communication these days is absolutely crucial, especially, especially now during the Corona when there are so many online uh, online well events but also information that appears online just the amount is, has exploded right um so good communication is crucial and uh and this is where you really have to think very well how to how to make sure that you communicate well probably the always the good idea is to have professionals working on communication 
to make sure that you have good visuals, to make sure you think of the message, to make sure that you have uh, the, the time of your event specifically clear, the link to the event and so on, no matter where you communicate on different social media, you know, to, to make sure that you have different channels. Or just think about the fact that now the, the youth, for example, you really want to reach the youth and uh, where are they hanging out? They don't have Facebook, they don't have Twitter, uh, they probably even don't use emails much. They are on Instagram or even younger ones are on TikTok. How do you use those platforms? It's it's really it's really crazy, but it's just the way it is. And we have to, you know, think about all of that. Uh, if you don't think about that, well, you're probably gonna have your audience, um, but you will not maybe reach those who are your target audience. If if, for example, it's really the youth, um, and especially if it's an online event. So how do you reach them? You actually have to think about all of these things. Mm -hmm. You make a great point about all the, the, I would say the expertise or just um, what I find working with students uh, is that they have a good idea, just like you said, okay, not just on Twitter, right? Okay, we haven't used TikTok, uh, but that, that actually, my kids use TikTok, so I, I'm amazed by TikTok, actually, and, and Instagram, and my daughter has this Instagram. She's she's thirteen or fourteen, so so she's that's how she's inter interacting with with her classmates and everyone. And then I have Facebook, and yeah, and and I just talk to my older, I will say even older colleagues at, at the university, and they don't get what it takes to put on an online event, right? Or or even to do the online teaching, for example. It just yeah, you just stream it, and then everything's everything's there but but why why do we have to treat online events differently than offline events well online events uh they are different because there is no this physical contact right uh and i, I think in the end we discussed about communication communication is important for both online and offline events but again because you don't have physical contact you cannot uh, give a person a leaflet here's our event you know if you can give it on the street some or something like that uh it's another type of the event um but it and it has many many uh pros this kind of events because if you think about it now anybody can attend an online event at any moment uh being in the pajama at home uh and just checking out what's going on it's it's really really fascinating and there are so many in conferences that moved online that you would not be able to participate in because you didn't have time or resources they became even free sometimes like some really really fascinating things um so actually online events are much easier uh in many ways then the question about online event comes uh it's much more to a large extent than an offline event how do you keep people engaged throughout the online event and it's a whole another conversation right um and uh the the visuals play a very important role the sound of the voice plays important the, the sound in general plays a crucial role and so on so on with offline event it's probably much more about networking but then also because there is this physical contact which you cannot add anyhow to the to the online event uh, in a to 100 percent right uh, that's already different and and i think this is the largest uh difference that then plays a role so online event is a lot about uh, good communication, as I mentioned, before the event, during the event, how do you communicate well to make sure that people are engaged throughout and after that you remind the people you were you visited this event, 
perhaps you want to check it again out. Perhaps you want to know more about the speakers. Perhaps you want to check out the paper that we were discussing whatsoever um, and so on. So the communication is so crucial that I, I, I just I cannot stop repeating it just because it's the way it is. And we felt it before Corona also at any moment. We live in a society where communication is so important and in, in the, uh, as an NGO, uh, we've been working many issues and a good online communication in Ukraine is through Facebook most. This is where most of our target audience is. It's it, it just makes so much sense because people find out about things and then they actually start acting through the through the social media and they they may call they may they may help they may, may become volunteers and so on. Going out on the streets is also important, but then uh, no no matter what you think about uh, yeah. No matter how how you feel about it, it's just just again, it's just the way it is. But but it's the 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 content then, right? So it's the content, or both. We could say uh, an interactive or appealing uh, event itself, a good speaker that's able to communicate clearly, uh, rather than yeah, I, I won't say the bad sides, but but someone that can communicate communicate clearly, and then also someone. Uh, but taking that content after the event, and I liked your kind of post-event uh, idea, and and doing something with that. So you could actually create short summaries or f- do follow-up because that would actually be important for your next event. Then, so you, you, yeah, you definitely should follow-up is a very important. Of course, if you send a follow-up through through emails, uh, that would be not probably enough because not many people may open emails. The, the opening rate is usually not very large. But then again, social media. And one very important thing is that do you want, you had, a, for example, an excellent webinar. You, you're you proud of your webinar. It was really so good. You had um, crazy speakers. And just make sure that you put it online. If you, you're fine with, the, with it being accessible to everybody afterward, you may be surprised how many people may watch it on YouTube. But then, you know, not just putting it on YouTube with a, with a name, uh, climate issues. Just make sure that you specify what it is, but also not making it too complicated to make sure people can find it, right? But yeah, it, it's important to think throughout and to be well, to be present practically everywhere. To really make sure that that you communicate through through to different. Again, it depends on the audience. So I don't want to suggest that you should be no, 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 of really, course, yeah, every everywhere. Depending on on what is your target audience, what is what are your goals in general. But well, yeah, having your video accessible, I think it's excellent. And this is one of the things that makes that make me think actually that well, online events is not only about just checking what's happening, or as we were discussing about the organizations that working on the topic or people uh, and so on. It's also the education. These days, it's an it's an amazing way to learn something new and and uh not just taking an online course which really hard to follow everybody knows who signed up for online courses oh, to make oh okay so i signed up for two and i never did them <laughs> so other people right. do that too <laughs> that's so complicated and here it's and this is actually one of the reasons why i keep doing this because I think for for students who who were who who now uh, well who who study the topics of climate, energy, sustainability, they probably also don't have that much time or that much patience to do some other things. And not only students, actually adults, anybody. Uh, and you can at least uh, check an online event. You just can turn it on. It can be on the background, but that you may be curious. You're going to hear some some great ideas, and it may inspire you. 
but it's a constant learning process and online events of any sort that could be more technical or easier uh, to understand doesn't matter. But then they, yeah, they, they, they really can give you this, uh, this unique uh, opportunity to, to, yeah, to get to know something new. Uh, and it doesn't take that much time. It could be half an hour. It could be one hour. It doesn't matter. It's, it's a short period of time. Uh, no, but I, I like I like your idea of just kind of streaming it in the background while you're doing something else. Um, I, I won't say I, I would ever do that for a meeting or anything like that. <clears throat> but but no, no, no. Right. What 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 one gets done now from working at home. But um, anyways, uh, but but it's because we're not going to conferences. And I think even post covid, probably this this amount of travel will be less. Let's let's hope. Or are we, we maybe be more selective, at least on our travels. But the, the benefit of going to a conference and listening to different speakers and a lot of different speakers, usually like a, maybe if you go to a three-day one, um, it's just getting a sense, right? Maybe not listening to that speaker the whole time, but you get a sense of what's going on at least. And so by having a sense of what's going on, where are the emerging topics, then, then you're, you're informed, maybe not in a, in a really in-depth way, but you have a sense of where, where things are headed in your field of, of interest, basically. And so by kind of, I like this idea of streaming in the background and just kind of actually having a list. Now I have all these events in front of me from your website, uh, like the World Energy Outlook 2020. Like uh, just having that kind of going, you know, it's an easy way while you're doing something. It's like listening to a podcast, but you just listen to it in the background and you have a good sense of, of the changes in the world. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That, that's my rant. Uh, I, th- I think it's, uh, we should, of course, well, well, if we listen to it in the background, then, then for organizers, there's always a good tip to make sure that the sound is good. And then you talk about some great thing that people who, uh, who listen to the background, they're like, what? <laughs> they turn. Uh, turn back to the to the video, and they're like, oh, I should I should really uh, yeah be more attentive about this the, this subject. Um, so yeah, so it's definitely uh, something that that we we should take. Well, we we cannot take it for granted because I think that well I want to believe in it, and I think that still the the number of online events probably would at some point reduce because the corona would not be there forever hopefully (laughs) and and i really think that uh, the offline events will come back with again with a uh, with a good energy at the same time probably there would not be as many as uh, as there were before just because uh um yeah does actually people probably start asking themselves the question does it make sense to bring hundreds of people for example for a conference if we can do it well online because now some people actually learn to do it super well online right but offline events have so many advantages that, that they would, yeah, that would exist for sure. Um, so just uh, now, uh, during the corona time, taking this chance of participating in some excellent conf- online conferences and, and, and webinars, I think you should just, uh, just really, really should use it. The reason that companies are changing, like coal, comp- not coal companies, financial companies, even oil companies, is that they need to attract younger people and no not many people want to go work for a coal company basically or an oil company that's destroying the earth so this is this is why the the companies themselves are trying to change definitely there will be an end to it and i think people feel it and the even the the old generations also they already feel i was i was absolutely i think i was i still remember this feeling how i was so amazed 
when we had a project with coal mining cities in Ukraine, in Donbass, in the control oh, yeah. territory. Uh-huh. And we had a first event for for the coal, for, for, for the representatives of these coal mining cities. There were mayors and, and well, quite high-level representatives. And we kind of gave them a task to think of the future of their cities. We didn't want to kind of touch, you know, the precious part. Like uh, if you want to, if you see coal in the future or not, we just, we just thought, think about the future of your city. And then they were giving presentations. And then they actually were saying, there is no future of coal. Wow. And I, I was almost crying. I was no, no, because for me, Donbass, the industrial, uh, well, the most important industrial territory of Ukraine. And, and uh, for me, it was really mind blowing just to see that they, they actually understand that because we thought of it, trying to explain to them in the future slowly that, you know, the world is different and so on. But they actually understand that. And they and they were saying, uh, yeah, we understand there is no future. We understand we have to do something, but we have no idea how and what and what to start with. And it was in 2017, and since then, the um, we actually had them establishing like a, a, a unofficial union, a platform of coal mining cities of the east of Ukraine, and and now they start slowly getting into the like national level and influencing the strategy. And so the just transition uh, discourse is not just a theory now. And thanks to to the people who are involved in this project and also in my organization. Uh, yeah, no, just, no, but that's what we hear from, from, I have a podcast uh, with, with uh, Roxana Bukata on uh, Romania and the Jiu Valley, and it's similar there too. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they realize, yeah. you know, that's not the future. And even in Poland too, from interviews I've done there, that they, they realize in those regions, the coal is not the future. But then, you know, economically, we, we need to find something for them to do, basically. Uh, and they don't want to be part of the whole thing. And they see it needs to be phased out. But how, I guess my, my argument is, how is the money that's supposed to go to help these people being spent? And how, how is the phase out? And who, besides, who keeps coal going? I mean, it's almost like a political discourse. Yes, we'll keep coal going but because the politicians don't have a better explanation of how they're going to give jobs to these to these people yeah it's it's also very complicated to think about it and I, because politicians are there for a short period of time uh, those people in, in the coal uh, regions they are there for a long period of time and some mayors have been re-elected and re-elected right they 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 stay in their city they don't leave but the politicians at the national level who probably was supposed to help. And we are not talking just about one coal city, we're talking about usually re- whole regions, right? So it's like much larger than one city. But yeah, the politicians just, for them, it's so complicated. It's like, yeah, phasing out coal in 20 years. Yeah, mm-hmm. why would I care, right? They don't. No. And especially as the, these politicians we're talking about, they usually, well, with the good exceptions, they usually, the generation, I don't know, 50 plus, I would say, or 50-ish, maybe average. So they probably would not be there anymore when coal is not there or something like that. Maybe that's the way they think. I don't know. I don't understand. It seems to be so complicated. And that's why the lack of long-term thinking is just so apparent. And so... Yeah, I, I see now that, that Poland is pledging to phase out coal by 2050. 2060. 2060. 2059. 20, 20, 2059. Oh, not 2060, oh, 2059. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in, in Ukraine, in Ukraine is 2070 for the moment. It, so, r- yeah, like why? I mean, and the whole sector is unviable now, anyways. So yeah. they just can't. 
I, I don't know, 30 years, no, 40 years from now, it's, it's not, whatever. I, I mean, no, but the, what's interesting is the, uh, and I want to do some more episodes on this, is financing for coal companies. Like basically private banks or international banks are not lending money to the coal companies anymore. So it has to be the national governments that have to support these usual nationally owned coal companies anyways. So it actually turns out to be governments that are perpetuating the use of coal rather than we can blame, you know, financial institutions. But even they are divest, divesting away from coal. So yeah. uh, coal and then later on oil is is definitely something we can get get rid of. But like in India, it's all owned by the government and they're keeping the coal sector and trying to expand it. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, that, that, but that's 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 it. That that usually the governments are so late in their thinking. Yes. With everything, and and they are late on one hand with bureaucracy and everything, and at the same time they don't think further than tomorrow or in four years. Mm -hmm. like but that. but that's a generational thing. So I mean, go back to your experience in 2014 when you returned to Ukraine. Why why was it so many young people getting involved? They, they they really felt like there was a time it was a time for change it was yeah. like a big boom yes. uh and uh, you know it's it's insane to think of, of the fact that because not only because we had the revolution then we had uh crimean annexation annexation of crimea by russia then the war in donbass and it was it was going like puff 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 like just a few months uh difference and it grew really really i just remember the feeling because i was still in manchester first uh for for the for the masters mm -hmm. and then back to Budapest. it was really really it was so hard to believe what was happening and people could just could not watch this calmly and it's interesting that they did not watch and say oh that seems to be dangerous and and really who knows what happens to ukraine i will stay where i am you know somewhere abroad in america whatever but they actually felt like they have to come and to have help somehow and um, and this, I think, this the power of the young people that it gave it gave a lot of uh, a lot of uh, like a big push, I would say. And because civil society became much more important, suddenly it was uh, because the actually the whole the revolution happened thanks to well civil society who are people yes, yes. <laughs> who were on the streets. Um, and civil society became so important, so it was actually and it was and it uh, it started it, it just not only first of all civil society united and there were these um the, the, in, in key in kiev we had uh, on the national level we had this platform established which was called the uh, it still exists which called uh reanimation package of reforms which united like 80 different ngos work on different sectors who were together together and i was i was among the uh those who participated a lot um i was I was the manager of the energy policy group. Well, I had 30 cool. adult experts and young and adult, like different age, different NGOs. We were sitting together, like different organizations and thinking which laws had to be passed. What do we do to, to kind of push for it? Uh, then we had policymakers coming to us and asking and saying, please suggest us the amendments, the drafts, everything really like to that extent it was really a unique moment now of course it's it's not the same now it's already kind of came back that policymakers are number one and ngos are trying to catch them and, and running behind uh but back then it was like a really uh this, yeah it was this, a uh, unique point in, in time and, and at that history when actually young people could be listened to and yeah, because yeah, they were yeah, the yeah. most active in the ngos 
they were most active and they really made a difference. Some of them then went into politics and also now some of them uh, became parliament members. And I think it's great because it's like an, a good progress for you when you from 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 yeah not NGOs but actually not just NGOs not just like going in the streets and shouting or something that some people see especially environmental NGOs ah Greenpeace you go out and you kind of take the flag you know <laughs> take the flag and demand something this is not exactly how it works right uh-huh. um, but but it's this yeah. transition then so they're transitioning I don't say into the system but they're becoming active members of yeah the the, the democratic system to institute to implement change in institutions. Yeah, 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 definitely. And this is why this is why Ukraine changed. And I think after 2014, there is kind of no coming back. They could be they could be moving back back and forth, back and forth. Uh, uh-huh. But there is no definitely coming back to before 2014. Uh, that was really different, different story. Uh, because now there is there is always an opportunity for reforms. Uh, there is a, there is a way to reach policymakers, decision makers. Um, and I think it's excellent. They just start, started communicating with you, taking you seriously and so on. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, so I'm very glad that I participated in that and, uh, yeah, it was unique and, and uh, again, it still continues and still there's so many things to do. And I think that's also one of the differences between the, between maybe working in the U S where so much is done. There's also a lot of to do, like, uh, also lots, lots to change. Right. Um, yeah. But in, in in a country like Ukraine, there is like an endless amount of, of no, work. No, no, no. The, the, yeah, and just fighting against. Yeah. Okay, yeah. let's not go down that hole. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. Great, Anna. Okay, let's let's end it there. We're we're, we're out of time. Maybe my last question uh, for you though is, um, what what can someone do that is organizing? What's one thing that someone can do that's organizing an online event that that could really change it or, or get a higher higher audience oh one thing would be one okay. thing is is not not that easy i think there are well there are definitely two things think clearly about the goal what you want to mm-hmm. achieve with your event not just have the event for the sake of having an event but really think of the deeply about a, a smart goal uh, and your target audience and the second well, communicate to this audience, uh, making sure that you achieve your goal, right? Communicate well. Uh, try to do do your best. Not everybody has communication manager or managers, uh, but try to do your best to visualize well, to communicate through different channels. Write to me also. Yes, yes. <laughs> Drop you an email. <laughs> yeah, climateonline.net. I would communicate for you uh, if, if, or I would also give, give you tips. Uh, but really... So think about essence and good communication, essence and a, and a goal and a good communication. And I think with that, you should be you should be well off. Okay, perfect. All right, Anna, thank you very much for, for joining us. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the My Energy 2050 podcast. Please follow the My Energy 2050 podcast on iTunes or Stitcher so that you can automatically get updated with each new episode. If you like this episode and feel others can benefit from the information, please share it on social media. You can contact me to provide feedback or suggestions on Twitter at MyEnergy2050 or on LinkedIn.